Welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's Book. Welcome back. So, how have you been? <laughs> All right, so this is going to be uh, episode... That looks wrong. I think this is episode 12. I wrote down 11. I actually wrote it down this time. That's an advancement for me. Yeah, so episode 12, and we're actually going to cover three chapters today. Chapters 14, which is entitled, What Problem?, Chapter 15, Atmo Grows, and Chapter 16, Airstrikes. So I just, I looked ahead and these are actually fairly short chapters, so we'll bundle them all together to make a decent length podcast for you. If this is your first podcast of Chris Reed's book, thank you for listening. And thank you also to whoever introduced you to this podcast. If this is your first time listening, I would suggest uh, possibly getting all the episodes before this, the other 11, because this podcast is me reading my first book, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. So we are going uh, through the book in order, and I am reading all the chapters, doing my best to use different voices to try and uh, make obvious the different characters so you know when i say chapter 14 this is literally the 14th chapter of the book so i would suggest going back getting those other episodes which you can do through itunes through your favorite uh podcast app or directly from my website narclaninc.com that's n-a-r-c-l-a-n-i-n-c.com go to the podcast link and there will be all the raw mp3 files for you that you can download directly past that um why don't we jump right into it this week so this is episode 12 starting with chapter 14 what problem this uh to give a little background on when these occur because again this book i kind of have three different threads going that occur in three different time frames before the war of insurrection during the war of insurrection and then roughly 450 500 years later on mars uh what we'll call present day with a reporter james hall and the man he's interviewing eric pullman and really while james hall is kind of our central character eric pullman is the one that exists in all these different time frames and he's really the protagonist as well because he's driving the story but we're learning it through james's eyes Originally, I had wanted to make this book uh, by James Hall and actually kind of have him be the pseudonym for all my writing, but it, it confused the people who knew me that um, that it wasn't Chris and that it was James. And they're like, who is this James fellow? I'm like, it's me. And they were confused. So I just did away with the pseudonym, but kept James as the character, the narrator. Anyway. So, chapter 14, what problem is indeed in the future on Mars? This is between James and Eric. Chapter 15, Atmo Grows, is back before the War of Insurrection on Earth. And then chapter 16 is during the War of Insurrection. This actually happens chronologically uh, forward from the last 
War of Insurrection chapter we heard, and I believe that was Soup with Chaos. So this is happening after that. This is actually uh, kind of in response to a, 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 uh, an effect of that chapter. This is what happened because of that. So, but starting on Mars in the future, what problem? What do you mean? Eric asked as I again snapped the note tab. You know that doesn't help the problem at all, right? Makes me feel better about it, though. I snapped it again. Look, as much as I'm appreciating watching your imitation of shaking on a rug, why don't you let me take a look at it? Eric said as he leaned forward with an open hand. What could you do about it, I asked. He lowered his head, peering at me over his glasses as he said, I made those for a living. I'm sure you looked that up in my bio. I had forgotten. I think it's a software issue, though, I said. And you think the latest software for those magically appears out of the air? Eric asked with a raised eyebrow. He motioned with his hand for me to give him the note tab. Reluctantly, I handed it over. He turned it over in his hand, sliding off the back face, looking quickly inside. Connections look all right, he said. Turning his gaze upward over his glasses, he said, How'd you manage an advanced model? These haven't hit shelves yet. It was the new Asus NoteTab Galaxy 15 edition. One of the reasons, no doubt, it was slightly misbehaving. I do some freelance product review on the side. Gives, gets me new models before anyone else, I said. Well, sort of. Eric nodded, turning his attention back to the NoteTab. Slipping the back cover back on, he turned it over, bending and twisting it as he watched the screen. Nothing wrong there. Let's see about... He began as he tapped in a few commands. A diagnostic window came up. While it was running, Eric commented, You know that at one time, flexible computers wouldn't have even occurred to people as a possibility. Nor, of course, a display like this one. Descendant of the original e-ink ones. The notepad chirped. Ah, uh, that's what it is, Eric said. Easy fix. Let me just tweak a few settings, he said, tapping. And here again, as it updates, Eric said as his fingers flew over the screen, accessing system settings and changing parameters at an amazing speed. Hey, hey, wait a minute, I attempted. Don't worry, I know what I'm doing, Eric replied without looking up. I tried to lean forward and grab it from him, but... Eric simply leaned back out of my reach. It's just, I said, now feeling like I was about to start in on a game of keep away with a child, that you're from the 21st century and that isn't. So, Eric said as he changed another setting, the note tap making an angry noise at him. I got up and began walking around the coffee table toward Eric. He mirrored my movement. It doesn't like whatever it is you're doing to it, I commented. They aren't really sentient, you know, he replied as he crossed in back of his chair. I followed, coming around by the windows. He moved with a quickness that belayed his apparent years. The note tab beeped again, annoyed. Hey! It twisted slightly in his hand. See? It's not happy! It's a computer, he replied. It only knows what we tell it. Same as all computers ever. How long since you ran maintenance on this thing, he asked, completing a circuit around the back of my chair and heading back around the coffee table. Reaching the back of my chair, I simply grasped it and stopped. 
Chasing him was getting me nowhere fast. I don't know, I said. Probably a month, maybe two. That's what I thought, Eric said. You missed a firmware update on this. The memory's a bit disjointed as well. Not to mention that the piezo generators haven't been stretched in a while. You do exercise it, right? Eric asked, beginning to counter-twist the note tab after hitting a few more commands. The note tab initially groaned, then began to purr, as Eric slowly contorted it. These things are just like muscles. They need to be stretched every so often or they get stiff. He finished, rubbing the screen back to flat between his palms. He came toward me and handed it back. Screen brightness was off. Update has been applied. Memory centered. Redundant cache cleared. Audio receivers cleared and piezoflexors exercised. Try it again. I tapped in a few commands and, to my surprise, the note tab responded faster than it ever had. Wow, I said in genuine shock as I came around my chair and once more took a seat. How did you do that? You can check the maintenance log if you're really curious, Eric responded. He stood over me just to my right. Suddenly, water splashed on the screen, some spilling into my lap. Hey, I exclaimed. Don't forget to keep it hydrated, Eric said over his shoulder as he walked into the kitchen to refill his now empty glass. The biological components need water to function. That one said it hadn't had water in weeks. You'd get fidgety too after too much time without exercise or water. It did seem to speed up even more as it absorbed the water. Thanks, I said, still confused over the aptitude with which Eric, very clearly in the, my mind a man of the 21st century, so quickly fixed my very 26th century device. It shouldn't have presented such a problem to my mind, but did nonetheless. Shall we continue, he said, sipping from his glass as he resumed his seat. That was chapter 14, What Problem? Chapter 15, Atmo Grows. You want, what? A high-powered, unidirectional, sound-based weapon. As much as we hate some of the pirates and looters we've been dealing with lately, we'd rather use non-lethal means to ward them off. Meng said, They already have the sort of tech you're talking about, James replied. I'm aware, but again, I'm looking for something handgun or rifle-sized that we could use in close quarters. Would also be useful in hostage scenarios, Meng replied. I'll talk to Eric, James responded. He's our resident expert on light and sound. Uh, See, that's what I'm talking about, James. Always willing to challenge what's possible, Meng said. No matter how much you flatter me, Meng, I can't make the active camo R&D go any quicker without raising too many questions. We're already putting some pretty tight deadlines on our own staff. Honestly, I don't know how much longer we'll be able to keep the lid on this stuff. Melinda said people here are starting to become very suspicious, some distrusting. There was a momentary silence. Meng, did you hear what I said? Yeah, James, Meng replied. How's the nanite research coming? Slow, James admitted. We've isolated batches from all our blood samples, but a high percentage of the nanites seem to be dormant. No matter what we've tried in the way of chemical or electrical catalysts, they won't activate. Meng paused a moment, then said, D'Andre is telling me you should separate the nanites from the whole blood and have them isolated? 
correct, James replied. Andres also mentioned to me that you've only tried either chemical or electrical stimulus at a time. Not both, Meng said. Right, James replied. So, Meng said, what about electrical chemical stimulation in a biological environment the nanites are used to? You mean basically add a nanite slurry to whole blood and then electrocute it? James asked. Yeah, Meng replied. Why not? Basically what happened to all of us the first time in the lab, isn't it? James thought about Meng's proposal for a few seconds. It could work. Certainly couldn't disappoint us any more than what we have been doing so far. I say try it. And James, Meng said, if it works, I'd like to make a gentle suggestion. You say your R&D is outstripping the abilities of your staff. Why not um, augment their ability to work? You're talking about experimenting on people again, James said. You catch on quick, Meng replied. But what I'm really talking about is using a process we know works to bring trustworthy people into the fold and grow our numbers. James, regardless of what happened at Plymouth, we're doing now what is best. It can work and can save a lot of lives and can help a lot of people in the process. James remained silent. Look, just think about it is all I'm asking, okay? We can't grow this organization as we had originally mentioned with only eight people. Just give it some thought, please. Jessica and Andre will be over tomorrow at 2120 for our current batch of supplies. Stay the course, James. Stay the course, James replied. They severed their comm connection. James knew Meng was right. To truly have more than a one situation at a time impact, they had to expand, to grow. But he was still wary of exposing more people to nanites. True, the old system of melding had been flawed and rushed and ultimately failed for those same reasons. It was a fluke it had worked at all. But with more time, functioning examples to work from, and more advanced resources, it could be done. James just didn't want to rush ahead again and lose any more people. But Meng was right. James began typing an email to Eric about Meng's new weapon request. Jim? Melinda had walked into his office without him noticing. What's wrong? she asked, hugging him from behind. The simple weight of her arms across his chest, and her head atop his settled, James. You know what's wrong, he replied. Just because I can read thoughts doesn't mean I always do, and sometimes it's the sharing more than anything that helps. James sighed, grasping Melinda's hands in his own before replying. Meng was pushing about the nanite tech again. He had DeAndre with him? Doesn't he always? You know he means well, hon. I know. It's just... <sighs> James sighed again, lifting Melinda's hands, interlacing their fingers. She wiggled hers, which made James smile. You could make the sun come out on a cloudy day, you know that? James said as he pulled Melinda around onto his lap. Looking into his eyes with that beautiful, glowing face of hers, Melinda said, and you, Mr. Christopher, still know just how to be sweet, even without telepathy. So what about this, though, she asked. I don't know, James said, looking down. There are still so many bad memories, so many things we did in rushing the project. I just, I can't get past them. 
Melinda grasped his head gently, raising his eyes to meet hers, wiped the tears from his cheeks with her thumbs. Then do what you can. Take the sacrifices those people made and make it mean something. If you can't let it go, then don't try to. Use it as motivation for something better. Redeem the lost. It's not that easy, James said. I understand that. I really do. I know what you're thinking, remember? Her smile only made him feel worse just now. He pulled her hands from his face as he turned it from her. Pulling him close, Melinda could feel him silently sob. She remembered the results from some of the early trials. Chemical baths turned instantly caustic, burning not a few subjects to death. Worse, a couple had lived, and others still direct nanite injection had been tried. To suddenly see a hole being eaten through a living, breathing person. James carried a heavy burden, his signature always being on the test orders. It's okay. It's okay. She hugged him close, the only type of therapy she could offer. They both knew she was right. They both knew redemption could not erase the past, but could bring meaning to it. And they both knew Meng was acting a necessary part in being a catalyst, no matter how caustic his attempts. James, I said, pausing on my way back from lunch as James was leaving his office. Hey, glad I caught you. Where are you, where are you headed? Section 13, he said. I waited to reply as a few of the other researchers passed us on their way back from lunch. Now? I asked. It's the middle of the day. I know. Got off the phone with Meng a while ago. He had a point, James said. There was a huskiness in his voice, a gruffness that I knew meant he had been crying. About what went on at Project 16... As we began working on the nanites again, we found it necessary to talk about and reference our work at Project Plymouth. Doing so by name might not pique anyone's interest, but we had ended up hiring some of our old assistants as lead researchers after being awarded the DoD contract, as Meng had said we would be. So referring to the project by a codename seemed a justifiable precautionary step. Yeah. There, he said. Ignore him. I replied. Stopping, James faced me. He has a point, though. We can't, and paused as more researchers passed. We can't grow as an organization without bringing in more people, and best way to utilize more people would be if we augmented their abilities. You know as well as I do how much quicker any of us can complete work than them, he added, drawing to sharp focus that unusually that usually invisible line that lay between we eight nanitics and the rest of humanity we worked with daily. They're still getting the work done, I said. But they could do it faster, better, James said with resolve. I looked at him, only partially in disbelief. You're really going to push the forward with this, aren't you? Yeah, I am, he said. A lot of the early nights of Project Plymouth had been spent trying to bury memories with a lot of alcohol. <laughs> Both I and James agonized over the choices made as often. I was the one giving James the last push needed, insisting that the ends justified the means. All right. Then let's do it right this time, huh? 
I put a hand on James's shoulder. Yeah, let's do it right. All right, I said, we're going to need to start shifting personnel around. Have you eaten yet? I asked. Just then I heard the click of James's lab doors had opened and Melinda emerged. They had hoped to exit separately enough to avoid looking suspicious. Actually, James said, blushing a bit, we were just headed there now. You two are weird, you know that? I said with a smirk as I headed down to my lab. I'd been combing through the most recent Atmo field reports, seeing if any of the performance results could prove insightful. In my inbox was an email from James regarding a handheld sound cannon. I printed it off and jotted down some quick notes on its backside, returning to the field reports. The ones I was most interested in were the ones where Adam had gone along. Being an analytic and a scientist, and apparently a very good soldier, gave us an advantage, as his mission notes were the most detailed of all. They contained the smallest minutia about how they had all reacted in the battle, as well as how the nanites had likewise performed. His reports mentioned, here and there, phrases like, communing with the hive mind. In this past one, he was writing about being shot. I could hear the hive mind scream as it mourned the loss of its many drones, but also as it scrambled to right the wrong and remove the intruding projectile. I felt it as my muscles contracted in a specific movement, forcing the bullet back out through the entry wound, which itself stretched by magnetic manipulation as the now flattened projectile was pushed out of my thigh. Trying to communicate the pain I was in to the nanites, I had the sense they did not understand pain. Next came a, shall I call it, unique sensation. The best way to describe it was as something of a reverse wound. Instead of my flesh being rent apart... It was being forcibly knit back together. As a scout, I had once stabbed my palm with a knife unintentionally while carving and penetrated to the bone of my first pinky knuckle. As it healed itself, it was sore and hurt. This new pain was similar but much more intense. I managed to keep out of the way as the nanites did what was necessary to get my leg functional again. Completely healed was another matter. Still... The patch allowed me to help ward off the insurgents long enough for Andre and Claire to evac the senators. What they were doing in the red zone is still beyond me. Now, two days later, the wound site is still tender but shows no hint of a bullet wound. I don't even have a scar with which to impress Jessica. The fact alone that the nanites could reverse a bullet out of a wound track was amazing. That they could then re-knit soft tissue to a functioning state in seconds, that was astonishing. The medical implications of such a find were just incredible. After all, if muscle, why not tendon? If tendon, why not cartilage? If cartilage, why not bone? As it seemed to me that it was the nanites that somehow directed and accelerated the regeneration, such technique could theoretically work on anyone with the properly programmed injection of temporary nanites. The trick was, of course, independently activating them. From Meng's reports, it seemed that Adam was turning into a great field asset and even a bit of a combat leader. Cautiously but resolutely, he would often lead in advance or be the one to scout ahead. I imagined what he would be like leading a company of people such as us. Surely such people would be a force to be reckoned with. And not only that, but we had finally figured out Adam's power. Claire's initial sense of him as a mirror wasn't far off. From those around him, he got shallow but useful versions of their power. Then, also, the nanitic density in his body skyrocketed 
around more nanetics in a sort of positive feedback loop, making both him and the nanetics around him stronger. And from personal experience, I can say that it made you crave the power he brought. Finishing my notes on Adam's reports, I turned to attempting to figure out a way to rotate us more and more from the main pool of scientists while avoiding the bulk of suspicion. I briefly floated the idea of simply relying on our nan nanites and burning the midnight oil. But in some testing we had done, we found that even the nanitic mass had its limits. After several days of little or no sleep, the energy reserves the nanites used to function, a reserve we had yet to centralize and pin down, would drain, and suddenly all the nanites would just fall dormant, leaving us as normal humans, but now with over twice our body weight to carry around. Nanites in such quantities as in our bodies, after all, added up to a significant additional weight. James, who was our test subject, could just barely move, his features instantly reflecting the long hours without sleep. After sleeping for three days, literally straight through, he finally woke up. Our base level number of nanites had reactivated in James then, and had again repaired the effects of extreme sleep deprivation. Remembering such results, I knew we had to find a way to give ourselves more standard workday time to focus on the nanites. With a list of current projects and descriptions in one hand, and a personnel roster with qualifications in the other, I scrolled through both, matching lead researchers to projects while searching for places we could spare staff. Since our DoD Atmo expansion, we had tripled our R&D staff from around 100 scientists, mechanics, and engineers to now over 300. Among the projects we had going was a spec project for a new class of warplane, a new fuel cell concept, Belinda's perennial favorite of a stronger, lighter alloy material, James's current non-intrusive HUD retinal projector, my continued work on a fully solid-state biological computer, a few projectile projects, and one on propulsion. Production staff were involved in several of the projects, most notably the SpecJet project. We were to concentrate were we to concentrate the projectile weapons programs, we could gain around seven staff. Spread those out among non-senior projects and pull one for one toward the senior projects, and we might be able to shore up our projects enough to focus on nanite research. Belinda's team had been working together long enough that her project co-lead, Numbar Trio, could certainly take lead for her. My computer research was really more in a testing phase, though Charlie Robinson who'd already taken over and researched for it once before would suitably fill in. James's project may have to go on hold. He was early stages and had been doing most of the work himself, only calling in engineers when he had design concerns or questions on existing component limitations. Just as I was thinking that I would have to call to talk the matter over with her, him, James knocked and entered. How is it going, dude? He said, coming in to sit across from me, grabbing the Rubik's Cube off my desk. All right. I think I have a way to shift personnel around so that we're freed up. Really? How's that? he asked. I explained my basic plan, referencing the information from both pads as he messed up, then started to solve the cube. My only real concern is your project. Could it be handed off just yet? I asked James. He rocked back on the chair's hind legs, completing a rope move of the cube. Not the full project, no. I have found some areas of R&D that a team of engineers could take over, though. I'm trying to use a laser to project the HUD onto the retina. 
Problem is, I can't get a laser fine enough to do the job that won't damage the cornea. Also, the servo for the laser pattern field tends to freeze up quick. So engineers could work on both of those, putting the project on indefinite hold in the meantime. Okay, sounds like a plan, I said. Then you, Melinda, and I would all be freed up to work on this. What about Adam? James asked. I'll send a message to Meng, asking him if Adam can be spared, I replied. Good. For the quickest result, we'll need the whole team back together. And I think Adam was making some good headway with the old data, James replied. I believe so, I confirmed. We had a plan. Things laid out. Now it was just a matter of how much time it would take us to reverse and re-engineer a working process to buy new nanites to a human host. James looked at the cube. Solved and tossed it to me with a grin on his face. Your turn. Chapter 16 Airstrikes Sir, they were waiting for us. Right as we landed, we came under fire, Nichelle Wells reported to Eric from the beachhead. Okay, hold tight, we're inbound, Eric replied, hitting the comm. He called to the other craft in his wing as he said, Mang called it again. They're getting hammered down there. Hud's on weapons hot. Follow my approach three by two. Eric flipped off the comm and banked his jet into a dive. It was one of the new NAR S3 support jets. Thanks to their missions over the last few months, Chaos's air power had been reduced to negligible levels, non-existent this far into Mexican airspace. Sherry, HUD on, Eric said to his jet. It connected with his nanite hive, feeding information that was overlaid on what he saw. Show friendlies. Yellow markers appeared over top of his view of the ground. In an almost semicircle around the LZ were lines of TDF elites. Reaching into the hive mind, Eric brought to the fore knowledge on support aircraft. He had flown sorties, support missions like this before. A little refresher on the basics never hurt, though. The information flowed through his mind on his, as his wing of five jets looped down and toward the LZ. Even without the HUD, he could have picked out the TDF forces. The closer he came, the clearer the line of black versus rainbowed plasma bolts became. We'll make as many passes as we need, James, pardon me, Eric said over the comm to his wing. Hit the chaos forces opposite our right flank first. He banked slightly, lining up for his run. His two wingmen would go in with him first, then the two trailing craft on a following approach as he had trained. Here we go, Eric said to himself as he lined up and made his run. Going into a steeper dive, he watched the altimeter plummet. Wait, he told himself. He had to time weapons release just so, catching the largest flat area of his dive's parabolic trajectory. Fire. Flatten out. Strafe through. Pull up and climb. The ground was coming up fast. A dark bolt flew past his jet. Shoot, he thought. They'd been spotted. The craft's ablative of armor would take some abuse from plasma bolts before it started to affect the jet itself, but not that of a company and a half, as was on the ground. The altimeter kept clicking down, reaching Eric's standard release altitude. He squeezed the trigger round, streaking out downward toward the ground as he began to level his descent. He was aware of shots likewise streaking out from his wingman. More plasma bolts found their way skyward now. At least that's pressure off the beach, Eric thought. He pulled up, his run complete, and punched the engines to gain altitude. The second run should be hitting now. Banking left and out of his climb, Eric had a view of the beach out the port side of his canopy. The right flank of the TDF lines had bulged outward. Nichelle, he called over the comm. 
How are you holding up? I've been in better spots, sir. That run relieves some needed pressure, though. Keep it up and we may make it through this. Do you want any support from the fleet? They already asked, Nichelle replied. Of course they would have. Eric was just being overly micromanaging. I think the chaos forces are too close for that sort of firepower just now. Y'all are just what the doctor ordered, she added. Roger, coming in for our second run. Eric banked left and dove again, his wingman in tow. The chaos elites were ready for them this time. Shots from all over their line flew skyward. Eric's plane shook from several impacts. Remember, your lives over the planes, Eric said to his wing. These were new planes, of course, state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line technology, but even if Chaos got his hands on one, he hadn't the facilities to make them. The TDF, through NAR, did. Lives could not so easily be replaced. The altimeter again clicked away, reaching release height. Eric squeezed the trigger as suddenly time slowed. Crap, he thought. While flying, this only happened when... He looked around his craft, searching the ground for it. There he said to himself as a very, very large plasma bolt took shape from the ground. How could they produce one so big, he thought. It was sized not for ground combat at all, but rather for taking down aircraft. Quickly shifting his awareness around him, he felt the flight pass of his wingman, one trailing right, one left. He would have to corkscrew in his avoidance maneuver. If he just pulled left or right, he would hit one of his wingmen. The bolt continued upward, rounds slowly popping in sync from his craft's wings. Missiles won't get out anymore before I start to corkscrew, he thought. Jack and Vong will have to take care of that. He pulled back and down on the stick, causing the nose of his jet up and left, laying off firing as late as he could. The bolt continued its slow ascent toward him. He could see it via the hut as his eyes glanced through the cockpit's floor. Reality suddenly snapped back to him. His gaze followed the bolt's path as it singed the tip of his left wing. At the top of his upside-down arc, he looked through his canopy at his left wingman, Lee. Wingman? He asked himself as he completed his roll, leveling out. Jack Fong! Missile's hot! Eric said curtly into the comm. Trailing as they were, they wouldn't need to be told why. Free fire! He added. The engagement had changed. Eric and his wingman, now off to his right, pulled up and banked left for another pass. Maneuvering, Eric once more took the center lead position. Sir, came Jack on the line. More than one of them down there. Damn it, Eric thought to himself. The stinks were raised again. Nichelle, report. They're pouring it on. I think you guys stirred up the hornet's nest. Not good. Scorched earth, Eric relied to both his wing and Nichelle. I repeat, scorched earth. It was code for free fire use of all aircraft weapons. They couldn't bring the offshore in yet. Chaos's elite were still too close to Nichelle's lines. The S-3s, though, could now do more damage. They did, after all, have one surprise weapon. Plasma cannons. Still listed as experimental, they had reverse-engineered these from nanitics. From elite. Eric flipped a switch in his cockpit, turning on the jet's backup fuel cell generator. Plasma weaponry of this sort ate through power like a starving man did bread. Two weapons port opened on each wing, exposing the cannon nodes. Eric locked into his approach run. The altimeter clicked away once more. Eric half depressed the trigger, warming up the nodes. Release height. Both hard rounds and plasma bolts flew from his plane's wings, six streams of destruction and death lancing out at the ground. 
Time slowed. Three dark, large plasma bolts were headed skyward. Missile trigger pulled. Indicator lights turned red on both wings as two missiles released their moorings. All three balls of plasma were headed right for Eric. He could feel missiles streaking away from his wingmen. Wing people? His mind quietly asked itself. He didn't want to risk getting in the escape path of his wingmen. Wing people sounds absurd, his mind interjected. One option left. He worked the jet's flaps to bring the craft up onto its right wingtip. Letting up on the trigger, he smashed the engines full-on, punching his afterburners. Reality and the force of the maneuver snapped back on him. Without the nanites, this would have been a very bad idea. On the HUD, a warning flashed. Exceeding 17 Gs. Suggest deceleration. What a thought. Working the flaps and pulling hard and left on the stick, Eric pulled his jet skyward into a sideways climb. The HUD flashed more intently. Exceeding 21 Gs. Suggest deceleration. Shut up, Eric mumbled as he leveled his flight, feeling a momentary weightlessness. Sir, you okay? Lee asked over the comm. I'm okay. Holy crap, those must have left scratch marks on you. That was close. Roger that. Continue runs, I'm going rogue. Eric had a sneaking suspicion about the ground-based airward fire. Lining up for a steep V-run perpendicular to the beach, Eric was going to target one of those plasma turrets. The approach would be fun. He flipped his jet over so its canopy faced downward. Flying over the battlefield, he saw Jack and Vong streak over the lines. They weren't fired on once. They're gunning for me, Eric thought. He flew onward just a bit, pushing his nose into an initially inverted dive, rolling his canopy back skyward. He'd pinpointed the AA plasma sites now. Something that powerful couldn't be quickly moved. Mentally, he locked in their positions, feeding it upstream to Sherry's computer. He added target squares to his HUD, sharing them with the others in his wing. Generally, Eric detested wide area incendiaries. Right now, though, he was called for. As steep as his approach was, the canister shouldn't tumble much. He opened up with his hard and plasma weaponry as his dive bought him speed. There was no strafing possible in this approach factor, though. He watched as tracers and plasma shots confirmed his course. Wait for it. Wait, he mentally chanted, passing release altitude. Wait. A warning light popped up in his HUD. Lethal trajectory. Suggest pulling up. Not again ignored, he mumbled. Something to take up with the aeronautics programmers. If someone was skilled enough to fly such a machine, they didn't need stupid signs popping up all the time. He released the trigger, cut engines, nosed up as his jet now fell directly along its flight path. He released his first neo-napalm canister. Having a different surface area from the jet, it quickly achieved separation, accelerating downward just faster enough. Engines on, afterburners. He shot up a mere hundred feet from the ground as the canister exploded, a concentrated burst. Shit, Jack said, still in his approach. Pulling back and once more angling his canopy groundward, Eric looked up at what he had just done, lining up for another run. As a plume of flame spread into the air, trees instantly lost all their leaves. Lee's jet streaked through the blaze with its left wing as she leveled for her ascent. Sorry about that, Eric said. Damn, that's hot, Lee replied. You owe me a cold one for that, and a new paint job. Finally gonna go with pink, Eric ribbed, nosing up into his dive. Only if you're gonna paint yours baby blue, she shot back. Fair enough, Eric thought. 
He took out the second and third ground cannons in like matter, his wingmen avoiding the blasts. The shell report. Not sure what I'm seeing down here, sir. The incoming fire is remaining dense, but weakening. Eric's mind raced. The running low on energy. Can you press? We may be able to now, yes. Do you want us to keep at them? Hold off for now. If I need you, I'll call. 10-4, Eric replied. To his wing, he said, form up on me. We're taking up a holding pattern. Everyone returned that they understood. Meng had been right. Chaos had anticipated their arrival. In conventional battles, such a, a route as they seemed poised to carry out would mean that they would get the foothold they needed here. With two armies of anonytics, however, it only meant one side would be forced to retreat temporarily. Despite winning here, the TDF forces would have to be withdrawn. Sherry, get me James. LaCraft set up a secure frequency to TDF HQ. Eric, how's the landing going? Almost as well as it looks from your perspective, I'm sure. I think we'll put it out. But they were waiting. Approximately a company and a half, which means there's still a fresh half company out there. We can't sustain a presence here. The audio-only connection did nothing to decrease the impact of James's silence. Eric could almost see his longtime friend stroking his chin as he thought. Okay. Once it's secure enough to do so safely, pull our people out. We'll have to try somewhere else. You really think that'll help? Eric asked. No, James replied flatly. But we have to try. Conventional troops won't last against Ninetics. Not for a minute. How is the conventional program shaping up? Eric asked. I'll bring you up to speed when you get back. For now, you just worry about getting our people back home safe, dude. James replied. Will do, James. Out. Circling overhead with a port bank, Eric could see the action on the ground. A hole had opened up as Chaos's, at Chaos's line center as it collapsed. Apparently the neonape worked, Eric thought. Catharsis. Chaos's line was broken. It was now only a matter of time before the whole thing broke into retreat. Despite his thirst for victory, Chaos was still cognizant of the fact that he needed his nanitics. At least for now. So long as the TDF had them, he needed them in force. Also plain was that air power had won the day. Could that alone see the TDF through to overall victory? It might. Especially if Chaos's forces kept trying to target the progenitors as intently as they had been. Chaos. Well, I can understand and even appreciate at some level your thrust to take out the top TDF leadership. You can plainly see this battle would have turned out differently had we had the freedom to target any aircraft rather than just Pullmans. Chaos looked up at his subordinate commander. The man, of course, had a point. That wasn't to be quickly discounted. Nonetheless, Chaos was confident that if they could weaken the TDF by eliminating its top leadership, that his original plans could still work. Get rid of the most powerful nanitics and eliminate the TDF advantage, went the nagging thought. He couldn't rid himself of it, as if it were a record stuck in one specific groove. All he could do was follow its persistent advice. I'm not questioning your opinion on the matter, Chaos said, glowering at the man. Merely your loyalty to the cause. The man was properly shocked. 
Read my mind and see where my loyalties lie, he replied forcefully. Such was becoming the standard replacement reply to the cause as my life. None of them could be disloyal. They all understood that as well did chaos. Perhaps such a force was a mistake. It, after all, took resources and put them into profitless. Chaos thought, felt his mind wander. What had it been thinking? He shook his head slightly to clear it. Unimportant things, he seemed to think. Keep your focus on the TDF leadership. It is the proper course, he seemed to mentally add. He knew he was right. This was the right course. Cut off the head and the body would die. Thank you, Subcommander, Chaos said, dismissing the man. They had lost the battle in tactical terms, having gotten routed from the field. Air power had turned the tide, but they had still driven the TDF forces back. They had carried the day. Eventually, a point would come where one side or the other would not be able to back down. They would have to see battles through, if only to blunt each other's forces. Nanitic armies would simply bash their heads against each other to no avail if they kept retreating before major KIA numbers cropped up. Giving conventional forces slight nanitic advantages had tested well, allowing them to last longer against full nanitics and allowing Chaos to exert the type of control he needed over them. Switching data tablets, Chaos brought up her report on the progress of his conventional elite. Project Black Band was proceeding well in South America. Its successes would be duplicated overseas where his forces had begun to entrench themselves. Two companies had made it to Europe, one to Africa, Asia, and one that had diverted to Australia. With so few full nanitics abroad, they would have to immediately begin to rely on the pseudo-nanitic black band forces, which meant that very soon the TDF elites would have to be reduced, no matter the cost. And that was... Chapters 14, 15, and 16 of Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. I hope that you're starting to get excited by this story as it starts to build upon itself, as we start to really see some of these strands coming together. If you go back to some of the previous podcasts, you will start to pick out, hopefully some of these things, some technologies, some terms that are now coming up in other threads, such as some of the comments from a pre-war of insurrection coming up in now the insurrection threads. In any event, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this episode with a friend, a family member, a loved one, a hated one maybe, I don't care. <laughs> Whoever you share it with, I appreciate it. If you have not, please head over to my website, narclaninc.com. That's N-A-R-C-L-A-N-I-N-C.com. That is my website on there. You will find links off to my social media pages, to Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube. I will be getting my Patreon account information up there soon, I promise. I will get it out there. I'm going to be revamping the site at some point in the near future, and then I will get that information up there. In the meantime, please let me know what you thought of this episode. You know, send a uh, tweet at me, send me a message on Facebook, post on my wall. Let me know how I can make this podcast better for you.
In the meantime, thank you again for coming back. Thank you for getting the episodes. Thank you for being part of this podcast, for being part of this experiment that I'm undertaking. We will see you next week.